wild world. Presented by... Do you know Raisin, the natural wine app? It's a guide to natural winemakers, bars, restaurants, and wine shops all around the world guaranteed 30% natural wine. This goes hand-in-hand with local, seasonal, and organic food. Not to mention, these are people with a locally sourced mindset. So you're going to find the best spots to eat and drink well wherever you are in the world by downloading the app at Raisin.Digital. And Disgorgeous, the only wine podcast. Disgorgeous. And this is Evan Donovan, the owner of Demimond, and I want to thank Wild World for having us as a sponsor. You can come over and check us out at 257 Verrett Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Lots of good food, great wines, great coffee. Demimondbk.com with some really wonderful people. Um, I'm going to introduce them and then pepper them with some things that I think would be really interesting to talk about today. Um, I'm going to be introing, I'll be throwing it over to Lou, our in-house fermentation specialist here at Wild World New York. Uh, Lou Amdor, of course, from Lou Wine in Los Angeles, the iconic natural wine store. Then to the left is James Priest, from the Referend Beer Beer Blendery in Pennington, New Jersey. Just getting to know James. I don't have a whole lot to say about him, but I'm hoping he'll introduce himself a little bit better. Um, Then to his left is Ben Jordan. I should be on the record here and let you know that Ben works at Early Mountain Vineyards and Lightwell Survey Winery, which are in Virginia. I work with those projects, and I represent Virginia Wines here in New York. Um, So Ben and I are essentially co-workers. I'm really rooting for him. Um, And then to the left of him is Hank Beckmeyer. Hank Beckmeyer runs a wonderful uh, farm and estate in El Dorado County in the Sierra Nevadas in Northern California with his wife, Caroline. Um, La Clarine Farm, which they founded in what year? 2001. Um, You know, we talk a lot about the new California, um, but really Hank and Caroline really established a foundation for natural wine in California. Um, I think drawing from much inspiration from the Loire Valley and winemakers like Terry Puzula. Um, and then to his left is Bianca Moralia. Bianca um, and I have been dancing around each other for many years here in Brooklyn. She worked retail for a few years before she decided that I think the only way to go was to be her own boss and to create a beautiful product that we didn't really have representation of in America yet. So she is the owner of Uncouth Vermouth, which is a small artisanal vermouth um, product. She has been, I think, um, redefining what vermouth is. Um, Many of the vermouths that I think most of us had here in New York, if we even had artisanal vermouths, were very heavy, a little heavy-handed and... and, um, I think Bianca's vermouths are really transparent and pretty and floral, and if you haven't tasted them, you should. And uh, last but not least, another new friend of mine, Adam Eblat, Elabd, sorry, um, from Yes Folk, making some really beautiful kombuchas as well as kefir. Um, up where are you located? Troy, New York. Troy, New York. Um, 
He's here um, set up sort of in the back of the room. These are non-alcoholic or ostensibly non-alcoholic kombuchas, so they're not hard kombuchas. Really, really beautiful, um, based on some teas and also some plants that were new to me, like yopan. Um, so that's our lineup. But today we're here to talk, kind of have a cross-culture, cross-beverage discussion about the art and science of fermentation and where we're out right now. Um, you know, I think the thing that's interesting for somebody who has been in the natural wine scene for a while is to realize that, um, you know, we're still very much sort of sorting out what the best way is to go about natural wine fermentation and what that means. And, you know, I think the thing that we need to be very clear about is that there is not one definition and that natural wine means different things to different people. And that includes the people who are actually producing the products. I, I think there's some um, confusion out there in the marketplace that sometimes as wine professionals and as beverage professionals, we have to be a little bit more active about um, addressing. I think that, um, you know, there's a term out there that's called zero-zero that's gained sort of a lot of momentum. I think that if you went to half of the people that espouse zero-zero wines or zero-zero products, they wouldn't even know what it meant. I think they don't really understand that, you know, I mean, wine and a lot of these beverages are still things that really need the hand of a person to create. And is there really any such thing as something with zero additions or zero removals? I mean, that's even the idea that it might be sort of a platonic ideal that you want to get to, but is it even possible? And then is it possible to do that depending on whether you own your own vines or you don't own your own vines? And we all know in America it's very difficult to do that. Whether you're farming in a hotter, drier climate or a climate that's more continental with a fair amount of moisture that may require sort of different approach in the vineyards. Um, but based on the raw material that you're bringing in, what are the decisions that you need to make and are you transparent about those decisions? I know that Bianca and I have talked about transparency before. Ben and I talk a lot about this term called greenwashing. But can we make sure that while we're trying to drive forward to get to beverages that are more pure and more sort of expressive of their terroir, that we're also not bullshitting people and that we're also being really clear about what's going on in our winery and our cellars? Um, I know that Byron created Wild World as a real opportunity for us to have some of these conversations and to talk about things as honestly as we can. And I think even as we do that, we exchange information and we are able to address our own crafts um, more aggressively and more progressively. So I'm hoping that you all will, with whatever time we have, address some of those issues. Um, you know, I don't know if anybody's picked up Alice Firing's new book yet, but Natural Wine for the People, you know, there's a page that is basically dedicated to Terry Pusala talking about his, um, his approach to filtration and that he does filter some of his wines and he feels that he needs them. And I think that, you know, if Terry Pusala, one of the OGs and rock stores of natural winemaking, um, can be really honest about when he thinks wine needs to be filtered and which cuvées and how he does it, um, I think that that's something we can all bring to it. So I'm going to turn this over to Lou, who um, can, uh, yeah, expand on it from there. Thanks. Who 
we don't have a ton of time, so and I'm I'm a, I'm a verbose motherfucker, so I'm gonna try to just ask a few pointed questions and let everybody else talk because I can just yammer on and I'll I'll shut up. But um, uh, this is a a festival called Wild World, and uh, we're here to have a good time and to enjoy fermented products of all sorts and. The focus is on wild fermentation. And uh, what, do, what do we mean by wild fermentation? And how does that differ from uh, whatever the opposite is, which is uh, controlled and industrial fermentation? Uh, uh, maybe we set up a dichotomy that is a, a little too extreme in, in with wine and beer, but the, our operating hypothesis it's one that I subscribe to, is that uh, wild fermented wine, wild fermented foods, wild fermented bread is more delicious. And I think sometimes when we focus on the ostensive health benefits or the, the ecological benefits or the carbon footprint benefits, we, we lose sight of this assertion that fueled uh, the, uh, the natural winemakers who created the modern category of natural wine in France, starting in the late 80s, they were, they were interested in making more delicious wines. And so I want to talk a little bit about us right now, talk about deliciousness and wildness. And uh, I'm going to ask Hank a couple questions first. Um, Hank, I, I first knew you through your cheese, and um, the cheese that you guys no longer make, but... Uh, it was a, a cheese and uh, a cheese that was um, of a sort that I hadn't seen from California before. And when I had my restaurant, I only sourced domestic cheese because I think it's really important to support our domestic cheesemakers. So, and we we sold a lot of cheese, and and um, I there was this mythical place called La Clarine Farm that made these phenomenal cheeses. And why were those cheeses so good? Uh, no inoculation? Because Carol made them. Because Carol made them? Uh, that's, it's really a question you would have to ask her. Carol. It's, it's honestly, um, they, they, they were inoculated. They were inoculated. Yes. Yeah. Um, but we also um, kind of carried over the way sometimes from a previous batch to continue whatever was going on that. So it was, it was inoculated, but it also was ever-evolving. Um, and, and we started to do that basically because uh, we wanted to see what would happen, to see if it was possible. Um, and, and I think it worked out pretty well. Um, but the, the, uh, the, the, the core of your question, you would really have to ask my wife about. Um, she... She made those cheeses, and, and they were really about her more than, more than me. I, I ate much of it, but... Me, me too. Yeah. Me too. So, let me ask you a wine question then. Did, oh, I can do that. Did, so, um, were your wines from the beginning always wild yeast fermented? Did you inoculate ever? No. Never? No. And did you notice that things got easier with each vintage in terms of 
ra the rapidity of fermentation? Um, in general, yes. So when I, when I built my winery, it was a, a clean slate. So there was never anything fermented in it. And uh, we had to rely on what was coming in on the grapes and maybe what was just in the air for our first year of fermentation. Uh, that was a pretty scary year. Uh, things took a long time to get going and to finish. The year after that, it was a little bit faster. The year after that, it was a little bit faster. So in general, yes, uh, you, you build up a, a, a population in your winery. It's kind of the house yeast, uh, which is augmented by whatever you bring in on the fruit every year. It goes pretty easy now. There are certain vintages where through whatever mutation that's happened in my yeast over the winter, uh, it, it's gone really slowly. Uh, this year was about picture perfect. Things took off right away. Things finished up really nicely. The year before was a little slower to get going, but then very quick to finish. So it's, a, it's really interesting because you never quite know how it's going to work out every year, just that it does. So. And the reason why I asked that question is that one of the startling things about winemaking and wine yeast, as I mentioned it in our last panel, is that the more you do it, the more you do it, the more wild yeast you have. So it's, it's kind of an ironic thing that you are also farming yeasts, even unconsciously, you're, by, by, by making wine, you're creating an environment where more wild yeasts flourish. And I know that... Um, when you're starting from, from, a, from a clean slate where wine has never been made before, or if you're starting in an industrial facility and you're converting it to wild yeast fermentation, uh, you're not really getting such tremendous fermentations at the first. But then over time, it's the same with baking bread, by the way. Uh, when I bake bread, I don't use any detergent to clean out my, my bread cambros. I just use hot water, and I always leave a little bit of stuff in there uh, with at least my fantasy is that I'm creating uh, in my kitchen uh, a micro terroir to, to grow bread more easily so that, that's why I asked that question just to sort of from the from the from the start is that uh, with wild yeast it's it's both uh, yeasts that are that are ambient but also through our human practice we're creating conditions for those to flourish even more right and then every like I said they, they evolve over time um, and we've, I, I, I think my house yeast is very much responsible for the flavor of my wines at this point. Uh, if I had to, if I had to shut down and make wine in a different facility, I, I don't think they would be remotely the same. I, I would probably have to call it something else because it would not be La Clarine Farm. Uh, it's very specific, I think, uh, which is kind of then gets into the discussion about terroir and, and how important yeast is to, to that whole concept. Uh, it, it's, it's really cool. I really, really like it. Now, with kombucha, you are inoculating, correct? But it's, it's a... The SCOBY is... It's wild, but it's also passed around from different people. So it's both wild and sort of farmed at the same time, isn't it? Yeah. Like you want to if, get into it? or If you wanted to start from scratch without a SCOBY, could you do it? Um, it's possible that 
you could get that lucky. I think that's the interesting thing about talking, like the word wild. Um, to me, I'm less interested in in the specifics of how exactly every fermented thing is being made and more, because it's so different between everything. I, I came, like we didn't, my wife and I didn't start off thinking, oh, we're, we're all about kombucha, let's make a lot of kombucha. We make a lot of different fermented things. Our home has been for years a home, like a home to so many different types of microorganisms, whether we're making meads or fruit wines or vinegars, sourdough, yogurt, and everything is different and requires a different inputs from us as people and from their environment. Can you make yogurt from scratch spontaneously? I haven't heard of it being done. The cultures that are required to create that thickening um, need to be introduced. The like heirloom culture or you know more traditional way of doing it is you use a spoonful of your last batch and you pitch it into your next one, which is how you can also make sourdough. The interesting thing is with sourdough, you can start from scratch and make a starter. Is that cooler or realer than um, using a, a starter that's been passed down for 100 years? I don't think so. I think it's more about how much are we opening ourselves up to the influence of the ingredients and the environment around us. Um, so the way we make kombucha is, yeah, we take, it's sort of like a pseudo-solera method. So we ferment in oak barrels that we get made up in the Adirondacks. With every batch, we pull about two-thirds of the liquid from the barrel. That's what's going to get um, packaged into kegs and cans for people to drink. And then we top the barrel off with more fresh tea. So the, the, the finished kombucha that was in there, that third in the bottom of the barrel, is inoculating the next batch, as is the barrel itself, because it's so... I mean, we have barrels that are two years in. There's been, you know, 50, 60 batches that have been through those barrels. Um, and so the barrel is influencing it. They're also all open top, so... And we don't do anything to prevent anybody in terms of microorganisms from joining the party. Um, so um, ostensibly the yeast and bacteria that are in the air in our space and in our region are all making their way in over time and we're cool with that. Um, so, but at the same time, um, and we don't make wine commercially or mead commercially, um, but when we do, like make sauerkraut, for example, y'all were just doing that. Like when I think when there's the potential to make something and just really allow, it's just decisions. We're all making decisions all day. When we make sauerkraut, we don't pitch anything into it. It's like exciting to see what happens, and it seems to um, consistently come out delicious if you follow a couple simple rules. Um, but at the same time, like, if that's not possible for a specific thing, like kombucha, that, the, the symbiosis of that yeast and bacteria, the fact that they're able to work in synchrony like that, just like with yogurt, the fact that it's able to thicken the milk in that way, it's special. And so that's something that 
because it can't really happen spontaneously. You like foster it and you take care of it and you nurture it and you make sure that it's happy and healthy. Uh, James and I were having a conversation earlier that you kind of touched on about um, cleaning. Like we, he was telling me about a brewery, was it Pendruid, that they don't use any chemicals for cleaning in their brewery, which is crazy. In beer, I feel like especially there's a lot of use of like many different types of cleaning chemicals, which we assumed we would have to do too when we started producing things commercially. And we do use like star sand to sanitize things, but we don't really use anything else except for free and clear dish soap, unscented dish soap. But when he told me, oh yeah, and there's this brewery, all they use is hot water, I was like, wow, that's badass. It's less, I don't, it would be less impressive to me if he was like, and they don't add any commercial yeast. Like, that's really cool to me too, but the fact that they're opening themselves up to that level of influence of their environment, like, that's even more punk in a way. So, beer. Do you do wild fermented beer? We do, yeah, exclusively spontaneously fermented beer. And what's your hygiene regimen? Uh, almost identical to what uh, Adam described. Yeah. We're mostly hot water. Like barrels get, you know, 170-ish degree pressure washed. Um, parts get hot water and maybe star sand uh, for sanitation. And that's, yeah, that's about it. And... Did you notice, like Hank noticed, that over time your fermentations are more vigorous, uh, or is it a different universe with beer? It's probably similar, um, but we brew seasonally uh, from, that's not that distinct from, or different from having a, like a harvest season that lasts, you know, a month or so, but we're brewing just in the colder months from now-ish through early May, um, and when you first get started, like we just brewed a few days ago, and it's doing absolutely nothing. Racked it into barrels, checked on it a couple days. No, no, no signs of life Scar- as that first brew day. Scary? No. It, it used to be. Okay. And, and yeah, in our first brewing season, or like, yeah, Hank was describing a little bit of the, mm, I don't know, trepidation or, or, you know, just that feeling of anxiety when you don't know what this is going to do because it is uh, a true wild fermentation. Yeah, early on, those are those are terrifying. Yeah, we had if we're brewing in midwinter when the temperatures are very cold, it can take two weeks sometimes to start seeing any kinds of signs of uh, fermentation activity. In the spring, or if we're doing consecutive uh, brew days, like if we're popping out three in in a single week or something, you definitely start to see if one barrel nearby is going strong, maybe that next one is going to be one day sooner to start fermenting or two days or whatever, cut it in half. So that does point to the likelihood of uh, the influence of the room, of there being something, you know, microbially colonizing the, uh, the air in the room. You know, with, with natural wine, we often hear this dichotomy between wines that are made in the field and wines that are made in the cellar. And from what we're talking about now, that seems to be a little bit... Uh, of a confusion. There's a bit of both happening. Uh, that um, if it were merely made in the field, it really wouldn't matter what the conditions in your cellar were like. You could use bleach and keep everything you know, sparkling clean. Uh, and it doesn't really seem to, uh, to work in, in practice. 
I, yeah, I think both definitely play a role, just like probably for kombucha or for, yeah, or for us that, you know, the wort matters, but yeah, also certainly what you're going to do in the cellar. Do gonna... any of you use a microscope to see what's happening with your fermentations? No, but we know you do. You want to talk about it? No, I don't. <laughs> I, actually, I do, but it, you won't get me to shut up. Um, uh, you guys use a microscope? Um, so I don't personally, because I don't have the skill set, um, but uh, a woman that works with us uh, is, is quite good at it, and she'll, she'll show it to us, and he'll look at it. And You know, there's always stuff in there, and so... In some ways, it's uh, showing you that there's bacteria and other kinds of uh, yeast that are not the Saccharomyces in there, and you, you see that there's stuff in there. And uh, but in the end, you know, the with winemaking, the that's Saccharomyces. As you watch the, the the movement of the fermentation, you really do see the growth of it um, under the microscope. Uh, but in the end, we're always kind of just looking at it from a curiosity standpoint because there's not a whole lot of acting to be done on it. The reason why I keep bringing up microscopes is that the, the gang of four, a gang of five, they became known as the microscope. These were the Beaujolais producers who essentially created the modern category of natural wine with a few other people who weren't in Beaujolais. But we kind of knew them or know them colloquially as the microscope group because they all used microscopes, uh, Lapierre, Foyard, Tavenet, they all used microscopes to understand what was happening in their fermentations and to see if there's anything they might do, not adding yeast, but anything they might do if there's a lot of Britannomyces, you might do something. Uh, and you, these are all things that you can uh, visually inspect without any other skill set. You don't need to do any chemistry or send it out to a lab. You can just look through a phase contrast microscope, focus, and you can see what the different microorganisms are. Uh, you can't type different types of Saccharomyces yeast, but you can see the difference between uh, Saccharomyces and Britannomyces. Or they look different. So you can understand just by visual inspection a lot about the fermentation. I will say that even though we don't use a microscope yet, it's not because we don't want to. I think it's really cool, and we're doing as much as we can to become more intimately connected and aware of what's going on with the fermentation. Um, kombucha is kind of the Wild West. There isn't any information, really, in terms of commercial production. There's a lot of just hearsay, like, oh, you can't make kombucha with black tea, or you can only make it with black tea. And it's like, well, that's just the opposite of what I just heard. And it's just what did or didn't work for somebody. Um, with wine and beer, there's the benefit of, like, a lot of research that's been done, and you can look to that. I, w I love to know what's going on, not because I want to control it, but because I want to know how to interact with it. And so I think that having a microscope's cool, and... I definitely am looking to get one eventually, if you have an extra one. I was under the impression that kombucha was only made from black tea. Is that not true? Uh, no, it's made from... Well, there are people that definitely say that. We... Well, I was just going to say, I, I make June tea, J-U-N, yeah. which is the green tea version of kombucha, but I've never yeasted it. 
it's just honey and green tea, and it makes its own scoby. Yeah. So, Jun, Jun or June is is what is commonly uh, how you commonly refer to what's a com- like basically kombucha that you feed honey instead of cane sugar or any kind of sugar. I guess we use organic cane sugar, but you can use any kind. And so Jun is a culture that is able to consume the sugars in honey, whereas if you were to feed kombucha honey. It, the bacteria and yeast aren't adapted to consuming it because honey's antimicrobial, so it takes like a special microorganism to break that down and consume it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of rules that people throw around. I always tell people try whatever because I've tried so many things that were that I didn't think were possible, or even that didn't work for me before, but now is working for me. But we use all different. We use green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, pu'er. They all do different things. Some teas that are amazing and delicious and really special, after fermentation, whatever was special about them dissipates or gets lost. Other teas that are pretty good get amplified in really exciting ways. Um, but I definitely wouldn't say that there's a hard and fast rule. The general like common sense, supposedly, is that some amount of tannin and caffeine is needed. So we ferment with things other than the tea plant that have those components and have great success. But I think it actually has a lot more to do with the culture that you have and the quality of the plant and whether or not it might have pesticides on it and the water that you're using, whether or not it might have chlorine or any other microbials, antimicrobials in it. Um, yeah, so maybe no rules that I know of that are for sure. Bianca, did I hear you right? You don't inoculate? So there's no SCOBY? Uh, I don't inoculate to execute a SCOBY. That's correct. I mean, so, so you... I mean, you, I don't make this shit commercially, though, either. So it's just for my own home use. So you take green tea. Yeah, and add honey. And, and that's it. No SCOBY. It, no SCOBY. It just it makes, makes its own... Yeah, and then I can take that or, or take out you know, most, most of that jar and add fresh tea. Um, cool. Same, same process, but I, I've never inoculated to create the SCOBY. So speaking of your commercial endeavor... It's just for home use. Um, your, correct me if I'm wrong, but the base wines for your vermouths, are, are they all um, hybrid grapes? Uh, none of them are. None of them. They're all vinifera? Um, yeah, I mean, okay. so almost all of the grapes um, that are sourced for the shit that I'm working with are from Macari, and it's a biodynamic vineyard on Long Island, uh, and then the Sargon uh, Vineyard on Long Island, which is a beach vineyard um, for Chardonnay only, but everything else comes from uh, the Macari Vineyard, and, you know, I mean, they're like, correct me if I'm wrong you guys maybe you know maybe Garrett or Lee have a different opinion but I mean they're like the biodynamic vineyard on Long Island um, who is you know continuously putting out quality fruit Uh, I don't have any investors so that fruit is sold to Red Hook Winery and fermented by Christopher Nicholson uh, at, at Red Hook Winery in in Red Hook, Brooklyn, and I, I buy it from there, either finished or unfinished. It depends on what they have, what time of year it is, what I'm doing with it. 
and that's not inoculated at the at the winery. No, it's not not the wines I work with. Some of the Bob Foley wines are for sure, but the Chris Nicholson wines are not. And do you notice differences each year with the base wines, and does that affect your vermouths? A- absolutely, definitely. I mean, there were a couple years where the Finger Lakes were having issues, so I couldn't get any Riesling, which really sucks for me because I'm, you know, like the only asshole who doesn't add sugar to her vermouth, so I have to rely on other things to create the sugar, so I'm either buying other fruit, uh, non-grape type fruit to add sweetness, um, or, you know, relying on the base wine to have some residual sugar. And just it's in stark contrast with every industrial vermouth where it's a standardized commodity and it never changes. It's basically a Coca-Cola. Like never, no one ever says, oh, the, uh, the 64, uh, uh, you know, is much better. Uh, it's, it's always the same. And, and they, they strive for commercial consistency because it's a standardized product. But what you're saying is with your, with your, your wines, they're wines. Yeah. And they change every year. At least 75% wine for it to legally be called vermouth. It changes every year, every season. Um, you know, I, I work with close to 200 plants. So it's very, you know, prob- probably more, you know, more so in your world than most of the producers here. Um, you know, you're, you're really treating it very differently. Um, you know, some things that I use will start a second fermentation. You know, and that's something that I'm always trying to avoid. I, I, uh, you know, I believe in good practices, but I'm not trying to make anything funky. I'm not trying to make anything that isn't clean. Um, You know, so it's, uh, it's, you know, definitely I'm lucky because I have an element of control that other wine producers don't have, which is grape brandy that I use as a fortifier, but it'll stop any, any fermentation that's happening the second I want it to. So it's, it's easy to control, even if I'm using well-made things. Like, you know, there is a lot of science to my art. You know, one of the big differences between fermenting a, a yogurt or a, uh, a kombucha and making a wine is that funkiness dimension. And... I just know from my own kombucha drinking and kimchi eating that my tolerance for funk is much higher in a kombucha uh, or, a, or a kimchi, uh, whereas if I'm drinking a wine and it, and it tastes like kimchi, I'm not so pleased. Uh, and maybe that's because I'm square. Uh, and, you know, but uh, um, I can't tell you how many customers ask me if I have any kombucha wine. And in my mind, I'm thinking, my thought bubble is, well, why don't you just buy kombucha? It's a lot cheaper. <laughs> and Add vodka. Add vodka. And then you, and you, uh, I'm half joking, but I understand what the request is. They want a cloudy wine that has a fair amount of acetic acid, and they want something a little fizzy, and they, they want it to be like kombucha. Um, but why, why is it, do you think, that something in one context is delicious, and in another context, it's not so delicious. And uh, I'm thinking about mouse in particular. Uh, I taste mouse and kimchi, and I will eat an entire jar of that. Um, mousiness, by the way, is a, uh, a, a fucked component of wine that makes it fucked up and, and bad. And um, It's uh, a combination of infections known as THP. 
It's in beer. It's in beer as well. Right, but... Do you ever deal with it? Oh, yeah, yeah, all the you time. Fight, you're it fighting away. it all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But just, it manifests, it, it manifests itself out. differently in beer than it does in wine, just like Britannomyces does, correct? Or no? I, I think it's probably... Uh, it's, it's pretty understudied, I would say, yeah. at this point in both the beer and wine communities, but my understanding is it's uh, Brett plus some oxygen, frequently for us at bottling. Um... And during a bottle re-fermentation and conditioning, it will eventually go away. Uh, I think probably the reason it might take longer in wine is if some kind of filtration has happened or sulfites have been added in any real, real degree to try to mitigate any further brett activity that might actually be the thing that's helping to metabolize the THP. Um, uncertain of that, that's my current working hypothesis. I have another beer question. So as somebody who, like, never inoculates, you know, and, and started with a blank slate just like hanky-poo and let the, you know, veracity of nature take over, basically, do you see an issue with other breweries who are claiming wild yeast but they're actually just buying Britannomyces? Do you run into that a lot? I think it's hard because the wild nomenclature in beer almost predates at least like American spontaneous production and before it was used yeah as people who would buy Britannomyces lab cultures add at bottling or you know whatever which for wine people is insane because we have entire wine regions that won't let you take fruit you know outside of village limits because nobody else wants that shit infecting their grapes. So it's so interesting to me how a lot of brewers are intentionally creating a Britannomyces environment. Yeah. Right. But yeah, uh, as, yeah, as to the use of wild, I think, um, I don't know, like almost they got there first to the word wild in beer. And so at this point, it mostly just means it might have nothing to do with a true wild fermentation. It might be a pure culture that they bought. A it's, a, it's a colloquialism that gets a pass. Yeah, yeah. So that's why we yeah try to use just spontaneous fermentation because it's at least for now has has a meaning. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's too long of a word for people to co-opt and in, in Let's like hope. spontaneous. Yeah. yeah, you're not gonna go out of your way you just to fucking say wear that. them it's down by just still talking spontaneous fermentation. Yeah. No, it's, it's trippy when you visit uh, the Cantillon Brewery and you see how they try to manage their spontaneous fermentation. So at Cantillon, they have these huge horizontal vats, concrete vats, and they're open. And the idea is that they're trying to expose their wort to as much air as possible. So, pardon me? It's not? Well, they don't have concrete. They've got a, a copper cool ship. I thought it was... It's, it's a big horizontal thing, though, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so not, not concrete, but it's... Yeah, but it's a big horizontal... Uh, and the idea is they're trying to trap and capture as much... Uh, and, and the brewery itself is, like, full of, uh, of you know, of, of these bac- of yeast and bacteria. Um, uh, with wine, we typically don't try to capture wild yeast by putting it in a huge... Uh, horizontal vat and keeping it open. Um, I think part of the anxiety would be fruit flies and other contaminants that might get in there. There's also already plenty of yeast on the grapes already. So So we have to because we don't have any skins to work with. Versus cider. Right, right, right. Yeah. 
I think your, your question or thought about like where like the appropriate or tolerable amounts of different types of flavors and different kinds of ferments is really interesting. Um, I wonder sometimes, there's so many things, like probably nothing that I've had here today would I have enjoyed 10 years ago. And, or definitely none of the things that I've had here today would I have enjoyed 10 years ago. And so much is like palates developing and also culturally what you've been exposed to at what ages. And um, even as recently as three years ago, I probably wouldn't have been able to pick up mousiness. We're all, as like cultural, like cultures are more or less prone to being picky or sensitive to certain flavors, but also individually, even just us at the brewery, like me and my wife and my two brothers-in-law, we all experience things so differently. And... So I think, I think it's totally fine to not like something that came from somebody who you like everything else that they make. And that's part of like the maker and producer's expression is saying, like, this is the set of things that I deem worth sharing with the world. Um, even if it has mousiness, some people are cool with it. Um, but to your like, point about it making sense... Too many people are cool with mousiness. Too many. Let Too them many. be happy. Let them, let, them, let them enjoy their lives. That's how I feel. And I think that, um, I mean, I don't particularly enjoy it. But also, if somebody is oblivious to something, like kombucha, like I, meant, I called it earlier, it's the Wild West because you can buy commercially produced kombucha that, to me, it's bad fermentation, some of it. It's really just, just off fermentation and it's uncontrolled or even maybe it's being made by someone who's not aware of what is happening and that makes our job really hard because we have to like say oh it's not going to be like that it's going to taste balanced and good trust us but at the same time I know that all of our palates are developing within each of these different uh, beverage categories and the hope is that those of us who are really digging into what we're doing and like becoming obsessed with every aspect of it can make something that more and more people will enjoy and that they will also be like, their palates will be adapting to the kinds of things that we are seeking and searching for. Um, okay, wine people. Do you guys, I'm just going to do your job, Lou. Do you guys feel... Pressure, so when Lee first opened this panel, she made a really amazing comment about the zero-zero movement, the, uh, con- you know, the concept um, that is being highly marketed and pushed, uh, particularly for new drinkers um, coming into the natural wine scene, whatever this is now, and do you guys find pressure from those communities to be less honest about choices that you need to make in the winery? Because there is like an, an Oz-like fantasy out there that there are wines with no intervention. Um, zero, zero is a fetish. And that's, that's all it is. And... It, 
Not no, necessarily no, them I don't, specifically. I don't but. feel any pressure. Like um, Terry Puzala had to use enzymes, um, what, like 10, 15 years ago, and he was very honest about it. And I was a wine buyer at the time, and all this shit was flying around about Terry Puzalot not being a natural... Six years ago? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, about all this shit flying around that Terry Puzalot isn't a natural winemaker because he used enzymes once. And I'm like, what world is this? Like, so Terry Puzalot isn't allowed to sell wine anymore because you... Never mind, I'm going to be nice. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Yes. That was a question for you too, I guess. Well, uh, to me, it's just been, uh, and I, I'd say our winery is more on the tradi- tra- transitioning, transitioning sort of nature of things. So uh, we came in and it was mostly using cultured yeast, and uh, now we're tra- transitioning away from that. And to me, just, I guess honesty is more important to me, and the just being straight up with people is, people respond to that as well, and they're excited about it. And... Um, you know, along the same lines, there are some beautiful wines that are zero zero, and so I think it does make sense to push yourself and see what you can do. And there's some there's some mediums where you can work in that way. And uh, Hank makes makes Petit Mansang. Petit Mansang is something that's pretty important to us as a winery, and it's one of those grapes that just can 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 do. You can leave it alone and feel pretty safe about it. In in our in our experience, and the the hardest part about it is getting it to go dry. Um, but if you're very very patient and you're willing to let a fermentation go for 12 months, then then it's okay. And so for us, we're on this journey, I guess, that is uh, where we're we are inspired by the things that that people are doing. But it is important to be honest about it. And when you know I first met Lee, it was about being honest about what we're doing and not, not greenwashing and not nature washing, whatever you call it. Yeah. Any questions from the audience? Uh, so, uh, I think in beer, our, our, you know, wild fermentation that most of us who are practicing this now got familiar with was Lambic. And my first drink of Lambic, you know, 10 years ago or whatever was, um, I wouldn't call it like enjoyment or what was, what was the word? Deliciousness. But it's, it does something where, uh... It seems like yeah, there's some meaning in it, and it's very elusive, but that it's ultimately worth exploring. Um, and I think just the sheer complexity of any wild fermentation, no matter what the the media is, uh, the medium is, is going to is going to present itself in some kind of baffling ways. Um, and as long as it's also palatable to, yeah, to the producer and the person that they're willing to hand that off to, um, yeah, I think, you can, I think you can get it some deliciousness, but it might not be the very first thing with some of these weirder fermentations. 
Uh, to me, it's the, this fine line between the complexity of the wild fermentation and some sort of purity that comes with, uh, with the approach. And um, those, you know, those are the wines that are most inspirational to follow down that path. And so finding this purity along with the complexity of long fermentations is, is what sends me down that path. Yes. <laughs> no, of course, a wine needs to be delicious, you know, because that's, it's, it's, a, it's a food beverage. Um, and when I started, I did not know that I could make a delicious wine using the, my, my chosen set of methods. Uh, as, it, as it turns out, I can. Um, but I've also I've also kind of played the the mind game with myself that what if what if it didn't work what what would I have done would I have thrown up my hands and just bought a bag of yeast and went for it or or not um, and I, and I always tell people I would have just quit that would have been you know I, it was like I wanted to do it this way and if it didn't work I'll find something else to do basically. Uh, luckily, it, it, it's worked out okay for me. But that's definitely, like, you kind of have to make that choice. So. 16 years ago in Oregon, uh, I was given my very first task as an assistant winemaker. And I had to think about it because it was 16 years ago. And um, I didn't realize it had been that long, but... I was told to dump a 26-pound bag of pink-labeled Domino sugar into a 1,000-liter tank, (laughs) Uh, which is less than 300 gallons, about 270 gallons. So a lot of sugar, a lot of sugar. And I was given a copper staff and told to stir. And I did, and that was my moment. That was the moment, I won't tell you guys where I was working, but... That was a moment where I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> this is how you make wine? I was like, why are we adding sugar? It's, you know, and this is the sad part. It was long ago finished fermenting. It, was, you know, it wasn't even something to, to activate anything. It was, you know, purely just an, a sweetening additive. And so I started seeking out other people in the area. Fast forward to 2009, my dad got sick, I moved back to New York City and was working uh, in retail, like Lee said, and, and for an importer and, you know, had a, had a moment where I, for many reasons, realized, like, I had to be back on the manufacturing side of things. But I think that my role in general for whatever any of us are worth in this business has been to force a more honest conversation Stop making producers lie to you just so that you can, like, drink in good conscience and really learn what to be afraid of when. So um, I just happen to really love vermouth. It's not the only thing I make, but it's, it's how I mostly identify in, in this sect of the industry. And, you know, it's, uh, it's something I've been thinking about obsessively lately. If everyone who's into natural wine decided to hate copper instead of sulfur... And I said this to Alice the other day, what fucking bottles are you going to have left on your shelves, people? 
Like, we're so focused on being afraid of SO2 and it's, you know, something that converts to a gas. So if you add sulfur at crush, by the time it's finished wine, none of that added sulfur is present in the wine. So that, to me, is not a crime. And it's not something that's poisoning people. And it's not something that's forcing people to drink a corrosive, which, hello, citric acid, lots of natural things are also corrosives. And I would argue there's lots and lots of natural volcanic sulfur out there being used as well. Like, you know, just many different ways to skin a cat, right? Um, So copper, however, is approved for every certified organic vineyard. And it's a fucking heavy metal that never leaves your body. So what the hell is going on here? Like, why is the conversation whether or not something has sulfur? I don't get it. Like, that's not what we should be afraid of. And exactly. So no, nobody would be able to sell a single bottle in their, you know, boutique natural wine store if they decided to start hating copper instead of sulfur. I won't drop this microphone. It doesn't belong to me. Just a, a quick, we have to wrap sure. it up. So just a quick. Um, for us, like coming, being somewhat, being basically self-taught, in terms of commercial production, because none of us worked at a production brewery or winery or, or anything, fermentation place of any kind. It was mostly just from the cornucopia of things that we were doing at home, starting to try to think about how we would make them in the way that the people we admire, many of whom are here today, it's been like really awesome to get to be around and taste and share with them how could we do some of the things that we do the way that they do wine or beer or cider? And realizing that by applying some techniques, but more than anything, a certain ethic, not a set of permissible or non-permissible ingredients or anything like that, but just like trying to search for a, a, um, a more intentional way of making something, that's what fuels what we do and it seems to always just lead to something also more delicious so it's kind of a it's they go hand in hand I think if you're really trying to do your best to be more I don't want to say pure because that's kind of like a weird heavy word but just more just bring more intent and awareness to what you're bringing into the brewery or into the space um I think that that, if you have taste buds or if you have people around you with some discerning taste buds and if you're searching with them, then that will lead to something more delicious and hopefully to also some other people around you that can buy it from you and keep you in business. Thanks, you guys, very much for this really enlightening panel. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, we're going to start uh, Ethics and Aesthetics of Natural Wine right away. It's about three minutes, so Steve, Alice, Bill, the Duke, or Mark, and is that it? And Lou. Everyone hang out. Go find your friends. This is going to be a good one.